All right, you guys can grab a seat. Kiddos, if you guys are in the service, you are dismissed to Kids Church. How's everybody doing? Good, good. So uh, two, two prefaces as we dive into this morning. Um, so if, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab it. Ezra chapter 7 is where we're going to be. Uh, but let me cover two quick things before we jump into the text. One, I love you guys. I just need you to know that. I hope you realize that. The elders and the lead team, everyone here, we're so grateful that you're here, that you're worshiping with us, that you're serving here, that you're bought in. Um, Just thank you. Thank you for allowing us to pastor you, to shepherd you. Um, We're just grateful for this opportunity. Um, So what I'm about to say is not like, this isn't one of those like hug slap, like, I love you, but that's not what I'm about to do. I genuinely love you. Um, but I want to offer some clarification real quick on something that's happening today after the gathering. Um, just because I don't, I don't know that, that most people are aware, or maybe you're new, you're kind of checking things out. Um, but we are a covenant member church, uh, meaning that, that uh, I know a lot of churches you might have grown up at, to join the church, you just come up at the end of a Sunday and you walk up front, you sign a piece of paper, and, and you're a member. Um, our membership process is a little bit more involved than that. Um, and at the end of the day, at the end of the process, you're going to sign a covenant. And what that covenant means um, is that you're in. It's, it's like a marriage covenant that, that the elders are going to covenant things to you that we promise here's, here's what we're going to do to the best of our abilities. And then you're going to covenant back to the church. Um, here's how I'm going to serve. Here's how I'm going to live. Here's what I'm going to do. Um, not just so that we can like clap and celebrate, uh, but for the glory of God and the good of Dahlonega. Uh, we just believe covenant membership is the best way to operate in that. Um, and it also gives us as elders uh, priority of who's who are we actually shepherding? Who are we actually responsible for? Because scripture would be clear that when the elders get to eternity, we're going to have to answer for souls in this room. Uh, And just let me give kind of a snapshot. There's maybe 150, 175, I don't know, people in this room. Um, There are 50 members at the branch. So we're not going to have to give a report for everyone in this room. Now, teachers, I'm going to have to answer for how I teach here. But as far as shepherding the souls that are in this room, um, the elders are only going to have to give an account for about 50 right now. So, so here's what I'm not saying. I'm not trying to throw shade. You should check us out. You should get involved. You should take time to examine. This is a big decision. But I also think there's some in this room that, that need to go ahead and take that step. That If you consider the branch your home, this is where you're serving, this is where you're involved. But if you've never taken that step into membership, I'd, I'd say, man, prayerfully consider that. And this afternoon at 1 o'clock, we're going to have um, our next step perspective members class. We offer those about once a month. Um, well, we just lay everything out on the table. Here's who we are. Here's what we do. Here's how we believe. And then you can take it from there. Um, part of that process is writing out your story on a piece of paper, which just wigs everyone out. I promise you, we're not like grading it. There's no scale. You don't have to have footnotes in Turbian, what, like none of that. Just literally write out your story. So there's some of you, now here's where I'm going to throw shade. There's some of you that's gone through the process and haven't written the paper. Write the paper. Let's go. It's not that hard. Um, she's not here, so I could say this. Just kidding. Um, I'm not going to go there. Uh, there's been people that have taken years, I'm not going to call them out because would, it would not end well, years to write this piece of paper. Just write the paper. Just take the process. Just do it. Um, if, if you want to confess your sin, uh, let's just, you want to have a little fun real quick? Yeah. If you were one that have waited years to write your paper, do you just want to own up and raise your hand right now? See, there's, there's a few. It's okay. We're in good company. Everyone look at me and say, write your paper. 
Hey, it happened, it happened to elders, it happened to elders' wives. We're all part of that process. Um, so let me, let me just read a quote real quick, and then we'll jump into the actual text for today. This is a quote from Mark Dever, just highlighting church membership. Church membership is our opportunity to grasp hold of each other in responsibility and love. By identifying ourselves with a particular church, we let the pastors and other members of that local church know that we intend to be committed in attendance, giving, prayer, and service. We allow fellow believers to have great expectations to us in these areas, and we make it known that we are the responsibility of the local church. We assure the church of our commitment to Christ and serving with them, and we call for their commitment to serve and encourage us as well. So here's, if I can just sum all that up in one statement. Uh, There's 26,000 around a 20-minute drive of us that don't have the hope of the gospel, and the church needs to know who's in on that mission. Simply put, we need to know who's in. And you can come and you can attend, and we're grateful that you're here uh, but at the end of the day, we need to, we're, we're building an army, and we need to know who's in and who's ready to fight back the losses in our community. Sound good? All right, so I, was, I promise that did not come across in a loving manner. I'm sorry. I meant that to be in a loving manner. Um, I'll just encourage you towards church membership. Sound good? All right, Ezra 7 through 8 is where we're going to land. And a couple weeks ago, I was reading this article, and this just blew my mind, right? I have a fascination with rich people, uh, primarily because I'm never going to be one. Uh, I chose the wrong occupation for that. So, so here, here's just, let me read some of these, because it blew my mind. Warren Buffett, everybody know Warren Buffett? $73 billion is his net worth. Billion with a B. There's some of us in this room don't have $73, right? I'm okay with that. Worth $73 billion. The brother still lives in his house that he bought 50 years ago for $30,000. What? If I had $73 billion, your boy's not living in a $30,000 house. I'm just saying. And this is the house that can get you. Maybe this one will get you. He eats at McDonald's almost every day. Gross. Gross. I don't know many people that eat McDonald's out of pleasure. It's more that dollar menu is calling and that's all we got, right? Right? I just can't believe that. Eats at McDonald's. Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook bro, worth $43 billion, still drives a Volkswagen hatchback, a used Volkswagen hatchback. And he wears basically the same combination of t-shirt, jeans, and a hoodie every single day. If your boy had $43 billion, I don't know what I would wear. I can't even fathom that, but it would not be a ratty pair of jeans and a t-shirt. Um, Charlie Ergen, the guy that, the president of Dish Network, is worth $14 billion, but he still packs a sack lunch every single day. I'd be eating filet mignon every single day. So Philip Mignon, and it's going to be great, right? And here's the one that, I mean, just out of all of these, here's the one that bothered me the most. The brother still shares hotel rooms when he travels. No. All right, like, I am not, I don't have that level of money. I will never have that. But I draw that now. If I cannot share a hotel room like I did in seventh grade beach camp, right, I'm not going to do it. I'm a man. I'm going to sleep in my own bed. You're not like, maybe the two queen beds were like, okay, I'm close. But if you're insinuating that you're going to share a bed with me and I'm 32 years old, you're not traveling with me. That's just it. Like, I'm not, I cannot get this. But here's just a fascinating part. The whole point of this article was these guys that have just kind of stumbled, have worked really hard into this massive success, 
But at the end of the day, they're just normal guys. And what we're going to see this morning as we dive into Ezra uh, is Ezra, we're actually going to meet Ezra, the seventh chapter, the author of this book. We're going to meet Ezra, and he's going to have this massive influence all over Israel, all over Judea, or Judah, all over Jerusalem. But he's just a normal guy. And I think in the world that we live in with celebrity Christians and mag- massive churches, and uh, we're constantly comparing ourselves back and forth to, like, well, well, my gift, I'm just a normal guy, I'm just a normal girl. What do I really have to offer towards the kingdom, Right. And we're going to see this morning that Ezra is just, just like Warren Buffett, just like Mark, just a normal guy, but he laid down his life to God, to Yahweh, and God used it in mighty ways. So if you're just normal in this room, if you have no special gift, no like marketable skills, you're just kind of there, good. That sounded really rough. You're just here, like you're just an amoeba, just doing nothing, you're just here. No, that's not what I mean. But if you've kind of go, I, I can't do what he's doing because, I, I'm, I'm, I can't do what she's doing because, I don't really have that level of because, we're going to see here that Esther is just a testimony of no. When God intervenes in your life, when you lay everything down for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, God's going to do incredible things in you and through you. So here's where we are as we dive into Ezra 7, chapter 1. Uh, just a quick recap for some that haven't been with us. We're working through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and those are two separate books, but they should be one. They tell one story, one narrative, so we're going to teach all the way through. Uh, and these are historical books. So the massive part of this is God's history in redeeming Israel, right? And so one of the things, well, there's two things that I want us to see. One, this is the last major historical event that happens before Christ's coming. Um, so we see these kind of stories. There's a few things that kind of trail out, um, and then it kind of goes silent for about 400 years, and then Christ returns. So to kind of get our mind on where we are in history, we're about 400 years before Christ returns. And the other thing, I just want to read this because we keep coming back week after week, uh, just to make sure that we're all on the same page of what these books do. These two books cover three different waves of returning exiles from 538 to 430 BC, but they tell one story the restoration of God's covenant people according to his word, which they are now called fresh to obey. Read that one more time. But these tell one story. These two books, these three ways, tell one story. The restoration of God's covenant people according to his word, by which they are now called fresh to obey. So with that in mind, let's jump into Ezra 7, chapter 1, or chapter 7, verse 1, and, and start to learn about the normalcy of Ezra. Ezra 7, 1. Now after this, now I know we just got there and I'm I'm supposed to read scripture, but let me address this book real quick. You see it, therefore, now after this, we should probably stop and and what's happening. So it's the temple is now finished, right? So the first wave led by Zerubbabel came to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Um, So uh, King Cyrus had sent them back. That has now happened. You can go back and podcast and listen uh, to us teaching through those. That has now happened. And now it's been about 60 years uh, from the time the temple was finished to where this time this starts. So now after this, he's talking about 60 years after the temple has been finished. So now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Zerahah, the 
the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Hedatub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Miriath, the son of Zadariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, which those two are my favorite, the son of Uzi, son of Buki, uh, son of Abesha, the son of Phineas, of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Verse 6, all that mattered. I'll tell you why in a second. Verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all the things that he asked, and the hand of the Lord was on him. Verse 7, and there went also up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statuses and rules in Israel. So as we start to dive into this, let us pray together. Father, we're grateful that we have the opportunity to come gather in this manner that many Christians across the world don't. Father, we're grateful that you've given us your word so plainly that, again, many Christians around the world don't. So, Father, over these next little bit, would you speak to us? And, Father, would we see your words clearly? God, because we love you and we desperately want to know you. We want to learn about you. We want to press into you. So, Father, would you speak to us? It's your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Now, this morning could almost be considered like a character study of Ezra. We want to figure out who this guy is, if the book is named after him, if he's the author. We we want to understand a little bit about who Ezra is. And the first thing we see is that Ezra wants us to know that too, because he goes into this massive genealogy of, of all the different descendants that he is part of. Now we see here, there's, there's one major thing as we go all the way back, it trails all the way and ends with the son of Aaron. So Ezra, who is a scribe, who is a priest, is a descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother, who was the first chief priest. So right out the gate, we see, okay, Ezra's got some cred because he's part of the lineage of the first chief priest of Israel. So when, the, when they came out of Egypt, when Moses was ruling, he put his brother as the first chief priest, and now we see Ezra as part of that lineage. Then it said that he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So this word skilled in the Hebrew literally means rapid. So what this is talking about is that Ezra was so skilled, he knew the law of the Lord so well, meaning, yes, the Ten Commandments, but but the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that he could rapidly answer any question, chase any thought pattern down. Maybe another way for us to think is that he was just fluent in the Torah, right? So if you've learned any languages where you have to like, wait a second, let me, I don't know what that word you just said was, let me flip through, uh, yo soy hungry, right? Like that's, that's not what we're talking about with Aaron, or excuse me, with Ezra. Because of his lineage from Aaron, because being part of the priest family, he knew the word. He, he just understood it, he read it, he spoke in it. I mean, he, here's probably maybe the easiest way. Any office fans in here? Okay, here's when I know I'm watching too much of The Office, when I'm trying to relate what you're going through to an office quote. I mean, just straight, oh, that reminds me of this time that like Jim said this to Pam and it was awesome. 
That's when I know I need to cool it with office because I'm watching it too much. But we see this is what he was doing, that when people would talk about things, when they would ask questions, he wasn't relating it to the office or some show. He was relating it back to the word. But that's what naturally came out of the lips of Ezra was the Torah, was the word, because he was rapid in that. And we see that verse 1 through 8 is this kind of a summarization of what's about to happen. Uh, but this had even given him the, the word, the knowledge that he had, had given him cred to the king of Persia, to Artaxerxes, that he recognized that he was this incredible man of God just because he was rapid in his response. So he was most likely a diplomat um, or, or like a political appointed position of supreme importance. So here's a lowly Jew because of his knowledge of the Torah that was now a supreme importance in the king's court. That, that's a pretty massive deal. But I know you're probably thinking like, hey, I thought you said he was, he was pretty normal because he is. The other thing that we see through his lineage is that although Aaron was the first chief priest, he wasn't the best chief priest. Let me, let me just read Numbers 20, 24 through 26. Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I give the Israelites because both of you rebelled, Aaron and Moses, both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Get Aaron and his son Eleazar and take him up to the Mount Horeb. To the Mount of Horeb, remove Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar, for Aaron will gather his people and he will die there. So although, yes, you take Aaron's lineage all the way back, the first chief priest, but because of his sins, he also didn't make it into the promised land. So yes, this gives, this gives Ezra some cred, but it also shows that he's from a lineage of broken people, just like you, just like me. That he was a normal guy that God's going to use for something massive. And so for us this morning, I just want to spend, just zoom into verse 10. If you highlight, if you underline, if you circle, I want us to obsess over verse 10 for a second. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statuses and rules in Israel. Now, I know a lot of us will want to come to church, want to come to a service like this and, hey, pastor, just tell me what to do. Like, just give me a checklist, just give me, um, so I can check these things throughout the list, and I'm constantly going, no, 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 repent and believe, repent and believe. That, that's what we do. Submit yourself under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But if, if you're one of those, like, box checkers, Ezra gives us his clear understanding of what he did and how God used that to elevate because there's this constant refrain all the way through Ezra 7, 8, all the way through the books of Nehemiah. And this refrain is this, that the hand of the Lord was on Ezra. All, all throughout the book, that the hand of the Lord was on Ezra. And so he had massive influence. He had massive power as he's preaching to Jerusalem, as he's preaching to the Israelites. The hand of the Lord was on him, a normal guy. And so we just have to ask the question, is that what we desire? Is that what we want? Do we want the hand of the Lord on us so that we can see massive things happen in front of us? So we can see God's hand move mightily in Delonica, on UNG, at our workplace, in our homes. Is that what we want to see? Because if so, here's a pretty clear uh, description of what Ezra did. So I'm literally just, we're just going to work line, or word by word through verse 10 to really understand what's happening here. Sound good? Or you can leave, either one. If it doesn't sound good. Just kidding, don't leave. There's security at the door. Um, number one, he set his heart. 
So straight out the gate, what is the success of Ezra? What gave him influence? What gave him power? What gave God the opportunity to put his hand on him to use mightily however God willed? The first thing that we see is that he set his heart. He set his heart. So Ezra, the man of God, the first thing that he had to do was set his heart. And the word heart is very tricky here. And if you have any experience with your own heart, here I'm, I'm going to tell you two truths based on Scripture that, that aren't going to be a surprise to you. The first is Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. We know this. The heart matters. What we believe, what we think, what not just intellectually, but in our heart is going to flow everywhere. That your mind can change, but your heart can't. It has a hard time keeping up. So, so guard your heart, protect your heart, keep your heart. But we also know Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So here's the two truths that we know. Our heart matters and our heart is wicked. I mean, just here's what makes me nervous. Can I just be real honest? When people, I just, I just feel like we should do this. If I went on every feeling I've ever had, I would be in prison because I murdered someone, right? I would have made some really bad decisions if I would have just acted on what my heart felt. Because a heart is wicked above all else. A heart is desperately sick. So Ezra knew that his heart matters, but he had to set his heart on the right thing. His heart matters, but he had to set his heart on the right thing. And here's a misconception I think most of us walk into. And it gets really corrected quickly into marriage, right? Because we'll do premarital counseling for people getting ready to get married, premarital. Uh, but we'll try our best to follow up with them as time goes on. And, and here's what we, we kind of notice. Uh, the engagement stage, the dating stage, it's just, it's, it's sunshine and butterflies. It's just beautiful. Loving her is easy. Loving him is easy. But when that dude doesn't take out the trash for the 13th time, loving him is not easy, Right? Right? When that girl takes her hair off and puts it on the wall of the shower and doesn't remove it, loving her is not easy. Girls, stop that. Uh, seriously, I mean, just, I will do whatever it takes to get you to stop that. I will run to be the president of the United States and outlaw that if that's what it takes. Stop it. Right? But the girls, I mean, my wife can say the exact same thing. Yeah, but your beard here all over the counter, stop that, right? I'm, I'm, girls, I hear you. I get it. But here's what married couples start to realize. The, the emotion of love disappears and the choice of love shows up. So what you set your heart on means that love is a choice. So you have this not only in marriage, but in Christianity. When God first saves you, it's, most of the time it's pretty radical. And it's the emotion of it just gets you. And you're all about it. You're reading, you're singing, you're buying books, you're in. But then you can just kind of watch six months, nine months, a year, two years, three years. When the normative of Christianity sets in, you get bored and you fall out. We see this happen all the time because we're not following the idea that love is a choice. That Ezra had to set his heart on the things of God. So church, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. It's a choice. We're constantly having to get up day after day setting our heart on the things of God. That is not going to come natural because your heart is wicked above all else. It's a choice that we make to sit this down and keep going. So, so how then, what does this look like? Colossians 3, I think it'll be on the screen, puts it this way. Colossians 3, verse 1. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So what does this look like? What was Ezra doing? What are we doing? Verse 2 outlines this perfectly. Set your mind on the things that are above. The writer of Ecclesiastes would say, get over the sun. Think over the sun, right? Where life is hidden. That's where we should be. That's what we think about. That's where our mind gravitates to. Because if not, we're going to set our things on, or set our mind on the things of the earth that are temporal, that are going to fall apart. So what does it look like? What was Ezra doing? He's setting his things on God, Yahweh, the Almighty, getting over the temporary problems, getting over the things that are in front of him, to set his mind on the things that will not end, that will not stop. The huge, I mean, just probably the most obvious litmus test, Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we can learn from Ezra, we can learn from the lips of Jesus. Your heart is set on something right now. Our hearts are set on something. It's not that our hearts are just wandering, looking for something to commit to. Our hearts are set, our hearts are committed to something. And the easiest way is just look at what you treasure. Look at what you value above all else. Because that's where your heart is set. So let's keep reading in verse 10, that he set his heart to study the law. That he set his heart to study the law. Now the law here, yes, is the law of Moses, but it's also the first five books of the Bible. So he was from a lineage of priests, right? So the conversations that were having around his house at his dinner table were going to be fellow priests, were going to be fellow scribes of the law that were having these conversations. So he learned a lot just by being in the house of a priest. But he also learned more than that by studying the law. Now, if you've been around church or you've tried to read through the Bible, you just a lot of us are like, what's the deal with the law? Like, why was that good news? What, what is the point of the law? When you read all that, like mixed fabric and all these intricate details of what God required, what is the point of that? Well, let me, let me maybe say it this way. Uh, I realize that I can be very hard to work with sometimes, especially chores around the house. When I get my mind on something, I'm, I'm running. Anyone else? And I don't have time to stop and explain every step that I'm doing. I just want you to do it, right? So when I used to be an electrician, I had a little helper that would come around with me. And, and here's what I wanted. When I climbed down off the ladder, I wanted, when well, I was going to go get a can light, I was going to go get something, I wanted my helper to move the ladder to the next location so that I didn't have to skip a beat. I just came back to the ladder, climbed up, and kept working. But he never did it. Right? I want my kids to do this when I'm doing something around the house. I just want them to read my mind and then go get what I need and bring it to me. How great would it be if every time I sat down on the recliner to watch TV, which I don't even know why we have a TV. We never have time to watch TV. But hypothetically, if I sat down and my kids just brought me, I don't know, a honey bun and a big old glass of milk, that'd be great. They could just read my mind and do it. And so why, why then? Because that never happens, but wouldn't it be great so why were they so excited to have the law? Because every God of that time was like me. 
They were, they were just assuming they had to guess, they had to figure out what they had to do to please this God. The reality was there was no God, there was no commandments, they were just guessing. What do, what do I need to do so that this fake God doesn't smite me, he doesn't destroy me? How do I keep this God happy? Because he won't tell me. And so God knows, here is the law. There, there's no guessing anymore. I love you, I'm for you, I'm making a covenant with you, nation of Israel, and here's exactly what I expect so Israel didn't have to guess anymore. They didn't have to try to figure out, am, am I pleasing God? Am I not pleasing God? Is he happy with me? Is he not happy with me? Israel rejoiced. They celebrated because they had the law of God in front of them. It was a good, incredible gift from God. Don't guess anymore. Here's what I expect. Don't guess anymore. Here's the best way that you can live. Stop guessing. You don't have to figure this out. I figured this out. For, just do this. And so they rejoiced over the law. They celebrated the law. It was the desire to study the law because they didn't have to guess anymore. Let's say it this way. Uh, longest chapter in the Bible. Anyone know? Psalm what? 119. Psalm 119. Anyone know how many verses are in it? I said it this morning. Anybody know? Someone's very slyly right now flipping your Bible so you can win this thing. 176, right? Did anyone say that? Did you say that? Oh, I was going to give you a t-shirt if you did. 176. Does anyone know the chapter of the long, or the title of the chapter of the longest chapter in the Bible? That your word is a lamp to my feet. The longest chapter in the Bible is the psalmist rejoicing, celebrating, delighting in the fact that they have the Word of God to be a lamp unto their feet so they don't have to guess anymore. So they delighted to study that because they knew that if they wanted to know God, study His Word. Church, do we know that if we want to follow God, study His Word? That the longest praise that we should write, the longest chapter of Scripture, is delighting in, rejoicing in, singing in the fact that they have the law, they have the Word of God with them. But with the nation of having the Bibles everywhere, on your phone, seven, eight, nine, in your house, do we understand, do we treasure the Word of God like Ezra did? That he set his heart to study it. So here's just some homework for you. Go read Psalm 119 today. I mean, even just the first eight passages, Peter read it for us this morning. Go read it, because Ezra delighted in the law, but he also set his heart, he disciplined his heart to study the law. So Ezra had set his heart to study and to do the law. Now, I know most of us, yeah, set our heart, Pastor, I get you. I see what Ezra did there. Study the law, Pastor, yeah, I get you. But I love the detail that, that Ezra didn't skip over, but he did it. He set his heart to study and to do it. And there's two massive hints, just the countercultural hints that we see here. One I already mentioned, uh, but King Artaxerxes said, whatever you need to go back to Judah, whatever you need to go back to Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah, go. You have it all. Any, any gold, any silver, anything you need, I'll even go into the treasury of Persia to give you everything you need. One of the things that's just interesting for that day, salt was a big commodity, and the king said, unlimited amount of salt, whatever you need, take it. Now that's just not because Ezra was a good dude. That there was, he was doing so much of the law. He was living out the gospel, the word of God, in front of the king of Persia. So much so that the king said, there's something different about this guy. You, you do it. It's all yours. 
Go for it. Uh, whatever you need, I want to help and support you in this. The other thing that I just find fascinating, because Ezra was not some military guy. He was not some phenomenal leader. He was not some, he just set his heart to study the law, to do it, and then God gave him the opportunity to teach it. So the day before that they roll out, it was a thousand mile journey, right? They had no uh, protection. He had, Ezra had turned down the guards that the king of Persia would have offered him. And they're about to go a thousand miles by themselves. This is priests, right? This is Levites. This is not the warriors. This is the guys that sat around and read. They're going to go a thousand miles carrying all this gold, silver, salt, all these commodities. And they're going to be walking through burglars and ruffians and all these kind of people. So instead of going, okay, what kind of military strategy can we implement? Let's go call the king of Persia. Let's, let's, here's what he did. Here's what happens when you set your heart to study the law and to do it. They fasted and prayed. Now, I mean, just, I wouldn't have done that. I would have went and got a big old sword, right? I would have done P90X all night to try to get yoked so that I could go and destroy some guys on the road. But when you study the law and you do it, you do things differently because the law is going to draw you into the heart of the Father, so you're going to do things that pleases the heart of the Father. So instead of trying to protect yourself, you're going to fast and pray that God would protect you. And you know the crazy thing? God did. He kept them safe all the way that thousand-mile journey to Jerusalem. Now here's, if, I, just, I just wish we could camp out here for a long time. Because we can't neglect the fact that, that we live in the Bible Belt. That the words hypocrite get thrown out all the time. That the word fake gets thrown out all the time. This is the universe. This is the world we live in. Where it's somewhat okay to study God but do nothing with it. That it's somewhat okay to, to read the Word and just get spiritually fat. Not, not burning, not doing anything with those calories, that, that somehow in our mind it's become twisted that the more facts you know, the more mature you are. And that wouldn't happen anywhere else, in, in any realm of anything else. That's not the point. Anybody know what tonight is? Uh, no, my Old Testament one final. But yes, also, the Super Bowl. So I'm going to be studying while y'all have fun time doing all what you're doing, right? Uh, let, let's, just, let's just kind of play this out for a second. The Super Bowl was incredible because they know the plays or they do the plays. Would you be impressed with the quarterback if he could tell you in detail every single play that they were going to run but never did them? Man, here's what I would do. If the defense slid into this formation, I would drive right over here. I would call audible. I would do a pitch instead of a this or that. And I played quarterback one year in seventh grade. That's all I got. So I'm going to stop because I don't know much about that. But would we be impressed with that person? No. We say, bro, you're a fake. I'm going to watch the guy that plays football, not the guy that just talks about football. But somehow we don't, we don't marry those two thoughts over. That we think that God's pleased with us because we know a lot about him, but we don't do what he asks us to do. Just, just try that. I mean, just, if you don't believe me, just have a social experiment. Do that with your family. Do that as college students. Do that with your teachers tomorrow. No, teacher, I read the syllabus. I know it backwards and forwards. I'm not going to do anything on it, but I can quote the syllabus back to you. Do that with your employers. 
but don't send a bill to the branch when you get fired. James 1, 22. I mean, this is maybe a stereotypical verse to go to, but it's just powerful. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For, anyone, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and forgets at once what he looks like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in doing. Nothing, a mentor told me this a long time ago, and I want you to hear this. Nothing is deeper than doing. So here's just, I mean, I hear this all the time, especially in youth ministry. I just want to go deep, man. I just want to go deep into scriptures. I just want to be deep. So we had, when I was a youth pastor, we'd have guys that would stay up all night and do these Bible studies every Friday night because they wanted to go deep. I'd go, oh, that's great, man. When's the last time you shared the gospel? Oh, man, I don't have time for that. I'm going deep. No, you're deceiving yourselves. You're patting yourself on the back for doing something spiritual but not doing anything with what you know you should do. You're deceiving yourself, and the truth of God is not in you. Ezra was not about that. Ezra was not about, yeah, I'm going to know all this, but I'm not going to actually do anything with it. No, he was all about doing what God asked. And because of that, he stuck out like a sore thumb. It was apparent, it was obvious that Ezra's, the Lord, or excuse me, that God's hand was on Ezra. Because he was doing it, he was set his heart to study and to do and then last, we see that he gets the opportunity to teach. So he set, verse 10, he set his heart to study the law, to do it, and to teach it. And this is massive. Romans 10, 17 would put it this way. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So Ezra is now getting the opportunity, because faith comes through hearing, to go back to Jerusalem, to go into the nation of Judah, and to teach the good news, the law of God, so that people would follow. And next week, we're going to see the implications of this. It's massive to see what happens when a faithful man of God teaches the word of God to the nation of God. It's incredible to see. But, but let me just kind of maybe summarize some of what's happening here. Let me maybe zoom in on maybe three possibilities here that I want us to kind of wrestle with. Maybe four. It took Ezra a long time to get to this point of being able to teach, right? I mean, do you find it odd that it took Jesus 30 years before he started his earthly ministry? And what Jesus was doing was following the commands of that day, that a priest would come of age of 30 years. So it took him a while to start teaching. It took Ezra a while to start teaching. Because it takes a while to set your heart on the things of God, to study the law of God, and to do the law of God. So, so here, maybe there's three possibilities of people in this room. One, you're trying to set your heart on the things of God, and church, keep going. You're trying, to set, you're trying to figure this stuff out, and I want to encourage you, keep coming. Keep, buy into MCs, buy into communities, come talk to us. We want to encourage, we want to fan that flame the best that we know how. Because here's what you know. You know that you're not going to set your heart on the thing of God. Okay, check. Now let me move on to box number two. Okay, study. Okay, I've studied enough. Now let me move into box number three. You know that it's a constant progression that daily you're going to have to fight to set your things on the heart of God. Daily you're going to have to have the discipline of studying the law of God. Daily doing the law of God is not going to come easier as time goes on. Can we just honestly admit that? 
Marriage does not become easier as time goes on. Parenting does not become easier as time goes on. But the discipline grows stronger in us to be committed to that. So maybe that's you in this room. You're, you're trying your best to get through these phases. You're trying your best to figure out what does it look like for me to set my heart on the things of God. And I want to fan that flame in you. Keep going. We're proud of you. Run the race. Discipline. Grace and mercy. Go for it. We're for you. But maybe there's number two in this room. Those who have dabbled into study, skipped right over the doing part, and a teaching way before your time. Right? So maybe you've dabbled into the study, you've gotten some head knowledge, you've skipped right over the doing part, and you're teaching way before your time. Now please hear me, I love the zeal of the study in these people. I love the fact that you've studied the Word of God and you are excited about the Word of God. Praise God, I, I love that fact. But dear brother, dear sister, let me encourage you, slow down, because you don't know. There's going to be a lot of things that you're going to learn through the exercise of doing. They're going to teach you and give you a platform then to turn around and teach. So don't skip over the fact of doing. Don't try to hijack this process. Be okay with the process. I mean, here, in all actuality, here's what this would look like. Tonight, I'm going to go home. I'm going to watch this YouTube clip. I'm going to learn about intermittent fasting and macros. Obviously, I don't know what either of those mean, but just stay with me. And I'm going to go into the gym tomorrow, and I'm going to start lecturing everyone about the goodness of macros and intermittent fasting. Anyone going to listen to me? No, because it's obvious that I don't know what intermittent fasting is or macros. <laughs> right? And it would seem absurd, and people would roll their eyes and go, bro, get out of here with that. But that's what's happening within Christendom everywhere. That you get excited about this newfound theology, and you go to lecture people now, here's the telltale sign if you're ready to teach. One, are people asking you questions? Are people coming to you for questions? The king, Artaxerxes, came to Ezra with questions. And here's maybe even the bigger gamut of that. Are people older and younger of you coming for that? D don't get yourself confused because you've influenced just a few people that are beneath your age beneath your maturity, beneath your level, so to speak. But are you doing so much so that people older and younger, new, new Christians, mature Christians, are coming to you and going, hey, what do you think about this? Let's talk about this. Would you teach me about this? If not, study the law, do it, and wait for your opportunity to teach. Don't jump into this. And, and here's... Here's the reality, if I could just press in on this one last time. Because what you don't realize is happening, brother and sister, if this is you, what you don't realize is that you're really damaging the cause of Christ. That you're really damaging the church. That you're causing divisiveness. That you're not edifying the body. You're not encouraging. You're not pressing. You're dividing it. You're destroying it. You're giving us a black eye in the community. And we don't, we don't need that. We don't need that. So, I mean, let, me, let me just, before I move on, as honest as I can, if you think that's you, ask someone. Ask some wise counsel, and they'll tell you. They'll tell you. And, and if they don't, come ask me. I'll be glad to tell you. 
Maybe here's the last on that. If you ever catch yourself looking down your nose at others because of their lack of knowledge, stop. If you ever catch yourself looking down your nose at other Christians because of their lack of knowledge, stop. Because that has turned from an edifying teaching to a prideful arrogance, and you need to stop. Sound good? All right, now that I've beat on those, let me beat up on number three. There are those in here that have studied and have done for a long time, but you have not yet stepped up to teach. There are those in this room that have studied the law of God. They've set their heart for decades to study the law, and they live it out perfectly, but you're sitting to yourself. You're sitting quiet. I don't know enough. I, I can't step out on this. Like, I'm just going to keep doing my thing. I don't, I don't need the, the platform. I don't need the limelight. I don't, I don't need to step out and teach. Uh, let me tell you, the reason that we have so many number twos is because we have so less of number threes. The reason that we have people overstepping their bounds and jumping in to teach before they're ready is because we have a shortness of people that are ready to teach that aren't. So if God has given you that platform, if God has given you that position, if you've studied, if you've done it, we need your help. We need you to teach. We need you to lead. We need you to explain the gospel in ways that people get it. We need you, church. We're desperate for people like you to step up. And so here, here's just maybe a way we can end. What does this look like for us? as New Covenant, as New Testament believers. Because, yes, we have the law, and I'm not minimizing the law, but Christ said I didn't come to diminish the law. I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill it. So, so what does this look like for us as New Testament believers? I, if I can, I would change the word law to the gospel for us. Right? So, so here's what it would sound like. I've set my heart to study the gospel of Jesus Christ, to do it, and to teach the crucifixion and the resurrection wherever my God places me. So here's what it looks like for us, because Christ fulfilled the law, right? He was the perfect one. He was the perfect one. The law now has been met within Christ. So I've set my heart to study the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live it out, to do it, and then to teach the crucifixion and resurrection wherever my God places me. If you have your Bibles, flip to 2 Corinthians 5 as I start sermon number two this morning. Just kidding, I'm, I'm going to end with this. And just so you know how much I love you, I just skipped over two massive points in my sermon so that you're not here for another two hours. 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to read 14 through 21. And I would be remiss to say this as you're flipping. Uh, if we're talking about setting our hearts on the things of God, the law of God, the words of God, if you don't own a Bible, there are some on the ground all around. Please take it. Nothing would give us more joy than to know that everyone in this room has access to a Bible so they can study it. Okay? 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. 
From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is our message. This is our hope. This is what we have. That we were strangers, that we were exiles, that there was no hope that we had apart from Christ coming to rescue us and to redeem us and to save us. So set our hearts on that. Sit in that message. Study that message. Live out that message that you are a new identity, that your old is gone, the new has come. What does it look like to walk, to obey, to believe that you're a son or a daughter of the Most High King? What does it look like that you can conquer sin because of Christ in you, that you don't have to be a victim, that you're no longer slaves to sin, but because of what Christ has done, you've been made righteous. Walk in that. Live in that. Obey that, and then when you get that, teach it. Because God has given us the message of reconciliation, that we are now his ambassadors, that we can tell people, we can boast all the more in Christ who has saved us, who has rescued us, who has redeemed us, not in ourselves. So here's the question for us this morning. Ezra was not mincing words when he said that he first set his heart. So church, what is our heart set on this morning? Before we even get to studying, before we even get to doing, before we ever get to teaching, Ezra first set his heart on the things of God. That is the first piece that if that piece isn't there, none of the others matter. So where is your heart set? Where where are you in this process? And now would be the time to reflect to examine our hearts, to pray through and to consider this. So in a moment, I'm gonna say a prayer over us and then we're gonna transition into a time of communion. You can see there's four communion tables, three communion tables, two communion tables, three communion tables. There we go. Uh, Three over there. And this is what we're doing. We're, we're, Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. We're going to draw our back, back, heart back to setting our minds on the things of God, setting our hearts on the things of God. So this is the time for us to honestly think through these questions. And we're going to take the bread, which represents his body. We're going to dip it in the juice that represents his blood. We're going to recalibrate our minds, setting it back on the things of God. And here's what I want us to think through in this process. Where are you? Is setting good? Praise God. Are you studying? Are you doing? Are you teaching? Should you teaching when you're not? Should you be teaching when you should be? What does it look like in, in your doing? Are you being obedient to what God's asking you to do? Are you caring more about what man thinks about you than what God thinks about you? Is fear of man or fear of God more prevalent in your heart? Are you desiring a platform way before you should? Are you more concerned about what people see in you than what God sees in you? Where is your heart set this morning? 
And scripture would tell us that as we walk into this time, it's, it's for the believer. So if you're not yet a believer, I'm so glad you're here that you can consider that you can hear the word of God taught, sung about, rejoiced in. But we're going to ask you just not particularly in this time yet. Because this is a time for us to set our hearts back on the things of Christ. So as I pray, as we start this process of examining, and whenever you're ready after I say amen, you can go take communion. But here's the question. What is your heart set on? All of Ezra's success was driven to the fact that his heart was set on the things of God. So let us pray. Of Spirit, I'm just asking you right now that you would examine our hearts, that you would speak to us, that you would show us where our minds are, where our hearts are. We can be so quick to give the right Sunday school answer because our hearts are wicked above all else. We don't, we don't want to be known. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be found out. And God, I'm asking you right now to, to reveal our true motivations here. Father, because we all want the ministry of Ezra. We want the limelight of Ezra. We want the, t- the second Moses, is what scholars have called him. Father, for some of us in that room, we, we want that. We want that cred. We want that not- notoriety. But what we don't want is the discipline. We don't want the process. We don't want the patience. We don't want the stretching, the molding, the growing. We don't want any of that. So God, would you speak to us right now, Father? You know our thoughts. You know the desires of our hearts. You know the realities of all of this. So, so would we be honest with you right now, God, for what our heart is actually set on? Is it our success, our family, our kids, our grade, our careers, our futures? Is it our happiness, our pleasure, our comfort, our control, our power? What is it that our heart is set on that is leading us astray from you and your word? This this hindering us, that is holding us back from setting our minds and our thoughts and our ways and our hearts on you. So as we think through this, as the Lord reveals this to us, church, if you're anything like me, you're going to have a time of repentance this morning. You're going to have a time of confession where you're going to have to admit to the holy God of the universe that our hearts have not been set on him. That we've cared more about being right or being seen or having a platform or being lazy or being comfortable than we have to set our hearts on the thing of you, God. So although it's not a fun process of revelation, it is a needed process in our sanctification that we would repent from not setting our hearts on the things of God and we would believe and trust that his promises are true. So church, consider, pray, think through. Whenever you're ready, communion will be open. Our elders will be over there. You can talk to, you can pray with. 
and we can repent and set our hearts on the things of God because he is worthy and he is worth it. And nothing, nothing pales in the comparison of him, his fame, his name, his renown, and his glory. You lose nothing by setting your hearts on the thing of God. You gain everything, church. We gain everything. So whenever you're ready, communion is open. We can repent, we can believe, and set our hearts on the things of God. In your name we pray. Amen.